It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. China was the first country in the world to experience effects from COVID-19. Now the epidemic there is slowing. How did the country of more than 1 billion people make it through? Lydia Lee is president of Weber Shandwick China, a global public relations firm. She says close tracking of the illness helped. All these tracking, all this information that you were able to access it actually make people feel more confident or less fearful because at that time we were fighting an unknown enemy. Nobody could see it, nobody can smell it, nobody can feel it. Can the same tactics happen in the U.S.? What can America learn from China? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held by Aspen Digital, a program of the Aspen Institute. China's close tracking of coronavirus infections was thanks to widespread use of technology. Internet access is available nearly everywhere, and almost everyone is connected. Lydia Lee says citizens relied on an app that would tell users if infected people were in the surrounding area or even in their neighborhood. The New York Times reports Chinese internet companies often share data with their government. That's not the case in the U.S. Without close tracing, like China used, it's harder to isolate sick people. So how is the United States using technology during the pandemic when it comes to citizen safety and misinformation online? This episode features Lydia Lee of Weber Shandwick China, Gary Liu, the CEO of the South China Morning Post, and Andrew McLaughlin. He was Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Internet Policy in the Obama White House and led global public policy at Google. Executive Director of Aspen Digital Vivian Schiller moderates the conversation. She kicks it off. As everybody on this uh, session knows, China was, of course, the first to experience the impact of COVID-19 at the start of the new year, and they now seem to have the epidemic largely under control. Sadly for the rest of the world, uh, we're now in the thick of it. In fact, just yesterday, the CDC announced that the U.S. has surpassed the total number of cases in China, and we're still on the upswing. In fact, the apex is forecast to be still weeks away. But as the tip of the pandemic spear, it's critical to understand what happened in China and what steps they took, especially, and this is our focus today, on the kinds of technologies that were launched or repurposed to address aspect, aspects of the crisis. China's technology infrastructure, of course, is quite different than anywhere else in the world. We'll talk about that. And yet there's much to learn. So we're gonna do the presentation and then I'm gonna do a little moderated Q&A with our, with our participants. And then we're gonna hear questions from you. And with that, I'd like to welcome um, Lydia Lee. Hi, Lydia. So uh, Lydia, uh, it's midnight there in Shanghai. So thank you for staying up for us. I really appreciate it. We all really appreciate it. And i um, looking forward to uh, your presentation and then I'll be back after Lydia's finished. Good morning, everyone, wherever you are or evening, wherever you are. First of all, I wanna say uh, from this side of the Pacific or in Shanghai where I'm living right now, we want to send our best wishes and hope that you are safe and healthy with your loved ones, okay? We've been through here in China two, three months, probably about two, three months ahead of you. So I know how you guys are going through. So please stay safe and hope that we, we can all together work together and have this over Zoom. So I wanna share with you in the next 20 minutes or so, 
my experience as a communicator and a marketer and a little bit of technology geek, what I saw, what happened here in China during the epidemic, the some types of innovation that I saw was very inspiring. Some of them probably you already seen it or probably experienced in the West, doesn't matter. I wanna share with you how through these ideas, maybe through more connection with each other, we can have inspire many ideas. What I share with you is that there are three phases that we went through, okay? Uh, outbreak broke, like Vivian said, probably in January. January 23rd was a shocking day for all of us here when we heard the lockdown of Wuhan. That became a very, very shocking day for all of us because fear and confusion started it. We went through about six weeks of quarantine here in Shanghai. Uh, and uh, during this time, our lives changed. Our mobility was very limited. And that created a lot of issues and a lot of problems. And uh, lastly, through recovery. We are here at the early stage of recovery, still very, very um, cautious of a rebound. But nevertheless, uh, you know, there's some anxiety still in the marketplace. Problems were created, but also opportunities that technology and collaboration came together and solved those problems. Uh, during quarantine and outbreak, you're going to see all this, and I think you're going to feel the same way as well, right? Information access, business disruption, and a little bit about China differently, even though the United States is very big as well, but with 1.4 billion people, scale and speed was an issue here as well. You know, what do we do here during that time that uh, uh, China did in order to allow its citizens to access accurate information? Uh, like, like everywhere else, during the very first stages, rumors was flying around. Uh, there was very confusing information of, about this virus that we all very worried. And very quickly, what we saw is organizations coming together, one with the technology platform like Tencent, through their APPs that they created. They organized and collect, collect all the information uh, from the, uh, in this case, CD, CMDA, which is the China Medical Doctors Association. They collaborate together to ensure the right information and knowledge about coronavirus was spread across the net, so it can be shared across. So very quickly, since every, most of the people are very familiar with Tencent and use all their uh, you know, applications very frequently on a daily basis, for example, like WeChat, people were able to find a story somewhere. They can click and probably copy paste the title and put it into this app, and then very quickly, the, the, the application will tell them if this is a real news or a fake news. Okay, so in this case, it, combating rumor was very useful. And at the same time, we were able to use applications as well where the media, since they were reporting about cases happening, in this case, in Shanghai, where are the, where the patients were located, where were they discovered, where were they registered, and there was all public information. The media was able to organize itself and work with the uh, map application and together if you were walking around at that time in Shanghai at that time we are not yet in full quarantine you'll be able to 
open the app and immediately the, the application will tell you if the surrounding areas, there were infected areas so that uh, users and uh, citizens are well aware of the situation and they can make the right decision. You know, there were also uh, applications that you could track your neighborhood. And this one was done uh, in collaboration with People's Daily. Uh, this is the government newspaper mouse piece. So the information that it had is accurate and official. Working with Tencent, you know, instead of, you know, when you walk to a place and then use it and see their inspected areas, in this case, you could actually type in your address or your mother's address or your office address, and it pop out of the sudden of recorded public recorded records of people infecting those areas. So basically, this is in divination of tracking, all this tracking, all this information that you were able to access it, actually make people feel more confident or less fearful. Because at that time, as you can probably imagine, we were fighting an unknown enemy. Nobody could see it, nobody can smell it, nobody can feel it. So a lot of tracking happened during outbreak. And in this final case, what I thought was very useful, we heard that maybe people were able to catch the virus in a very close space. In this case, probably on the airplane, or rail, or sometimes buses, okay? And this is a critical uh, time because outbreak broke when Chinese New Year was starting. And millions and millions of Chinese people were traveling to going home, just like Thanksgiving, but you multiply by 100 times. And, and so traveling was part of our you know, journey home or coming back to working cities. But if we were able to catch some, you know, if we were able to know if uh, somebody on my plane was uh, later on infected, I might have to be quarantined. So in this way, it, it created a lot of applications to make people at least informative, be able to track, but at the same time, be aware of the situation. So we thought that was very interesting. Uh, technologies and accurate information coming together and collaborate together and ask, let people access it easily. And that's key, easy access, because people could be a 16 years old, which are maybe able to very um, savvy using mobile phones. But later on, I will show you, they were equally providing information to the 80 years old, who might not be very savvy, who are very used to still text messages. What we saw, apart from information access, which was critical during the outbreak and even quarantine, I think during the quarantine is the most probably the most anxious and painful because it is so inconvenient. Our lives change, our style has to change. You know, all of a sudden our mobility was restricted. And personally, I stayed home for four weeks and my mobility was very limited, just walking my dog every day, twice a day for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And it was very in a very close area, not because they did not allow me. It's just that I was very conscious that I don't want to bring, uh, you know, uh, travel to the community. Okay. But a lot of things were disrupted. Restaurants was, were closed. Uh, retail stores were closed. The only shops that were open was pharmacies, or supermarkets. So as you probably know, e-commerce and all these things in China is, you know, is part of our lives. 
all of a sudden we couldn't, you know, just with one click and buy everything. So what did happen? Um, for example, no talk, no contact delivery. Alibaba very quickly, so its platform, Timo, uh, created this using the AI technology very quickly that instead of you going to the door or the delivery person going to your door and give it to you, this close proximity contact was creating a lot of fear, as you probably imagine, because of, of what's recommended now, social distance. And that time in China, it was recommended as well. So they wasn't able to provide the delivery. And this is a huge thing in China. Uh, as a Chinese, to tell the truth, uh, sometimes there is a lack of trust in this society. People's things might be stolen. And it was very common here. So deliberately, the most secure way is to deliver by hand so that I can actually see it and touch it and recognize it and click a button and say, yes, I received it. But during this time, no contact. You know, no contact. So what happened? A very low tech, very quickly, is that residential buildings put together a, a space around their uh, uh, front door where, you know, the delivery people can put their items right there. By the time they put the items automatically or they click a button, an AI message automatically send it to the receiver or the customer and telling them your item is right here. Please come pick it up. And to tell you the truth, this is something very unique. Uh, and the lack of trust through this exercise was sometimes overcome very interestingly. And nowadays, there's packages leaving right there for a few days, people not picking it up, not because people you know, not interested, but I think that probably this type of uh, uh, exercise made a lot of people understand you know, the level of trust in a society actually is for the benefit of the society. If what I learned that pre previously, Amazon in Japan also want to introduce no contact delivery. And according to my friends and colleagues, it wasn't very successful. It was very against their norms. And because of coronavirus, they reintroduced this. And we're still waiting to see how was the success or the situation. But it's very interesting that uh, something that was introduced before, probably too early on, can inspire and special circumstances uh, can inspire a reintroduction of a services. So think about it, you know, if that fits us to your situation. You know, in, in China, you know, we 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 love McDonald's uh, and uh, and uh, it, it, it remained open, some of the stores, thank God, okay, during the quarantine time, but still no contact. So we, what we did is that before we entered the store, sometimes we don't even enter the store, we just scan the QR code and on the side, side if, the, if, the, if the store allows, you have a space that will have your, your items there and you pick it up, Again, the AI will tell you when it's ready so that you only need to have very close contact or in a very close space within the store, going to the store for a few seconds, okay? So that was very interesting. It's still happening now in Shanghai and Beijing, very interesting. Additional, you know, Starbucks, the same thing. I went to Starbucks and took a look and you know, they removed all the chairs in Starbucks, okay, coffee. And they, they want you to stand uh, at least two meters apart from each other. And again, everything was ordered through your mobile phone, payment, et cetera. And all you need to do when it's ready, they send you a quick message, you go in there, pick it up and you can leave. Uh, 
trying to minimize the close proximity contact of people with people. And during this time, we saw you know, a lot of people start using vending machines. And this is a locking coffee, a Chinese you know, uh, coffee chain store. They start introducing nowadays you know, vending machines so that you know, people feel safe when they want to go buy something because there's limited contact. Finally, two examples I want to share with you. Apart from no contact purchase, you know, schools were closed and some uh, are still remaining closed right now. Okay. Uh, but all of a sudden, since the, uh, the, the abundant applications in China in terms of online learning was already there, very quickly, uh, uh, schools and organizations collaborated collaborated with existing platforms and put all their studies online and actually very quickly taught uh, teachers how to interact with students. So I know a lot of, uh, of my staff today, their kids are still at home and taking classes. And, uh, uh, and sometimes they have to fight for a bigger screen in the, at home. So it's very interesting. At the same time, we saw um, DJs, you know, moving their service and their jamming sessions online. And I think this is nothing new. I read that there was a DJ jamming session last weekend that Michelle Obama and all these famous people attended. The same thing happened in China two months ago. And you know what? It actually had, could be a business model because products or brands that were used to be able to sell at nightclubs, in this case, liquor or tobacco, you know, we're able to do the same thing right there, even though you cannot get the delivery right away, but they created fake drinks that you can share with your friends, send it to your friends for $5 or $2, you know, virtual drinks, you know, and, you know that requires a little imagination, but for a lot of young people, that was fun. That's a way of engaging. That was a time, it's a way of killing a lot of time. And you know what? One of the DJs, two hours jamming session, the highest uh, um, same time logging users, unique users reach about 70,000. And I, I heard uh, uh, in a report, he earned $120,000 for two hour gig. So new business models are coming in. So that was very eye-opening uh, for us because at that time during quarantine, people love content. They want content, okay? Uh, you probably heard about China building a hospital in seven days. You know what? People want that content. People want to see it all the time. So they did a live webcast using 5G technology. And that's applied the same thing of moving a lot of clients' events. They're all moving to online because of the cancellations of, uh, of the events offline. They're all moving online. So having that technology, having that accessibility really helps people to move, keep moving, okay? Finally, uh, apart from, from, from all this business disruption, let's go into scale and speed. And I think I want to very quickly take you through because the size matters here in China. The first one, uh, next slide, please. During this time, you know, telecom companies work together with the uh, uh, telecom uh, work with authority to ensure that through a QR code, you can scan it and show it to authorities telling that I have not been to the epicenter. Okay, or have not been into infected areas. And this is became a very good validation code for all of us entering buildings now or shopping malls. Okay, and that is very good because during this time people might lie up because they are scared. So there is a third party that validates you. 
The next one, the same thing, the same concept. You can manage a million of residents using an application, you know, even buying masks or uh, ordering masks through Alibaba. The next one, healthcare, you know, you can do checkpoints. So instead of paperwork, you know, you, I, I the same, the similar concept, scanning a QR code directly, you, you know, you pop up the information and then you can click through and that's it. And finally, what I love the most, the next two slides, robots and, uh, and, and, and droids were in action. Um, so what we thought, you know, um, uh, what we thought is that very interesting that these this, this type of machines were able to help out when there was not enough manpower or because this situation was very great. For example, during quarantine hospitals, because at the very beginning, people were still scared. They didn't know how the virus going to impact them. They sent robots to send food and water. We thought that was very interesting. You know, old-fashioned technology still deliver a message. This newspaper on the 3G mobile phone still works and very, works very good with older population. And at the end, sometimes uh, physical banners will work. So this is some of the things that I saw that thought was very inspiring. Hopefully they can give you some ideas of what happened in China. But what I want to say to you is that it seems like connectivity <laughs> make the spread of the virus even more because we're so connected or because the disruption became so big because we're so interconnected. But I truly think sitting here talking to my colleagues around the world on a daily basis, this is my S webinar in the last 10 days. I feel that I feel and also feel that being connected is part of the solution. Exchanging ideas like sessions of today will help us go through this situation. So I hope the last 10 to 15 minutes uh, of, uh, of uh, information can help us a little bit inspiration, but uh, we are also here to learn from what you guys can do so that all together, we can work together and defeat this coronavirus. Thank you, Vivian, over to you. Thank you, Lydia. I'll just share my two observations as I'm listening to you and thinking about never mind what's possible, but what would be ad adopted in the West. My, my initial reaction is um, the thing that we most desperately need is the way that you, that in China, everybody has anything on their phone, um, yes. as opposed to one of the big concerns in this country, as you know, is all the touch screens. You go to the supermarket to check out, you're touching a screen. We're constantly touching screens that everybody else um, has touched. Um, so I think that would be incredibly welcome. And we'll talk to our other panelists about what, what when and if that is possible. The one thing I'm not sure would be adopted is, um, yes, we are all happy to send virtual drinks via emoji. I don't know that people are gonna pay for it, but you know, who, who am I to judge? So mm -hmm. um, uh, Lydia, one of the things, you, know, you, you talked about a little, you touched a little bit on how some aspects of behavior have stayed with, with communities even while the pandemic is beginning is beginning to ebb, um, the crisis beginning to ebb, and life is returning to some semblance of normal. The idea of greater trust to be able to leave packages outside. What what else has changed? And do you think some of the technology that maybe was was really launched and scaled up uh, during the crisis will be part of the new normal now? Um, very good question. I think one one area probably is not technology related, but it will have an impact in behavior. And in the future, probably how technology are designed is 
uh, the distance between people. Okay, China is very crowded, very dense, and it's very natural for a lot of people when they stand in line, they are very close to each other. And through this pandemic, people start to realize private space needs to be respected. I can't speak for the whole China, but I, but I started to see in Shanghai, people started respecting each other's space. Will that impact technology? I do not know. But in terms of technology, what I realized is that people rely more and more on technology in order to be knowledgeable, knowledge, access knowledge. So the, the, the medical information, areas of being infected, people, basically use the mobile phone, just like in the past, we will open a news, uh, read a newspaper. So it's become a second nature. Today, there's a joke that we don't, I mean, if we leave the house without key, it's fine, but I can never leave without a phone. So in some ways, I think phone becomes second nature. And in some ways that becomes, you know, not just a technology anymore. It's part of the lifestyle and DNA, which I thought is very difficult, but very different because we embrace it very naturally. Whereas when I travel to the to to Europe, etc., we they still see as an addition atom, you know, an intrusion uh, intrusive of your life. So that might impact how technology in the future will be designed here for China. But there's still a lot of questions remain but it's a good topic to, to, to explore. Thank you. I'm gonna to turn to you now, um, Gary. Reminder, Gary, the CEO of um, South China Morning Post. First of all, congratulations on the amazing coverage that your, your paper has done. I, I, it is one of my um, go-tos um, every morning uh, about what, what, what's happening, certainly um, in, um, in your part of the world. So, so thank you for that. Um, but I want to ask you to talk a little bit about, um, and, and, and I should mention that Gary's expertise is, um, is, a, is as a technologist, um, despite the fact that he's the CEO of a news organization, both in, in Asia, but also extensively in the US. So help us understand what it is about the, China, the internet in China that made this tech so quickly uh, deployable and scalable and how that might be different than in the West. There are a few fundamental differences that I think um, tell the, the story of the Chinese tech industry as a whole, and certainly they became expressed and expressed well during the COVID-19 um, epidemic in China, the outbreak. There are really four major things um, that, that, that are just very different between China and the United States. The first one is, of course, scale. Um, and Lydia mentioned this, the, the amount of data available uh, and the number of people that are actually on the mobile internet is huge. 850 million internet users, 98% of them use mobile. So you can imagine with all the events, the, all the GPS tracking, everything that's happening is happening on your phone. That amount of data and that scale of data actually allowed China to, to uh, very, very quickly actually deploy uh, intelligence uh, and deploy services because they effectively, you, you knew exactly where everyone was uh, any, any moment in time, especially in major cities. The second difference is that there are government mandated areas of investment. And uh, it just so happens that a few of these came into play because of COVID-19. AI, robotics, 5G, or telecoms being three major ones. Telecoms, I don't have to talk about. You guys understand how important it is. Uh, for there to be massive connectivity, fast connectivity, uh, pretty stable connectivity around the country. And the major cities, actually, 
I mean, there's so many major cities, even small cities in China, larger than our large cities in the United States. Uh, but tier one, tier two, tier three cities, internet is generally not a problem at all. And even in rural areas, increasingly, uh, the deployment of 4G and now starting to test 5G, there's already about 200 million people in, in China that have 5G available to them, means that there is pretty widespread coverage for the internet. AI was used to diagnose. And uh, one of the key reasons why the triage system in China ended up being very, very efficient, the first few weeks, not so much. Uh, and then it became very efficient was because AI was deployed uh, to diagnose. In effect, you know, in the US right now, if we get sick uh, and, and we go and get a diagnosis, we get blood drawn for a PCR test that gets sent to a lab, uh, that sometimes it takes several days for it to come back. And then we get chest scans and a radiologist stands and looks at the scans to see if they're shadows, to see if we have COVID-19 like pneumonia. In China, especially in some major cities like Hangzhou, it's all done by AI. So the diagnosis becomes super, super fast. So that was the second thing is an investment in these areas. The third difference um, is that just like the US, they're huge internet companies. But the difference between the big Chinese internet companies and the big US ones is that in the US, they specialize in one thing. In China, they are full stacks. So the Alibabas and the Tencents, as well as big insurance and you know, healthcare companies like Ping'an are full stack technologies, which means that the moment they want to deploy something new, it deploys across an entire stack. Alibaba uh, is a payment platform. It's a communications platform. It is a delivery platform. Tencent is the same thing. It's a news platform. It's a chat platform. It's a payment platform. All of these in gaming platform. So because of that, new technologies can be by one company um, can, can be deployed across an entire stack of services. And then the fourth one is just logistics. Lydia also mentioned this. Uh, mobility and delivery via the internet is just a way of life in China, again, in the, in the cities. So those logistics uh, were already, they're already, the infrastructure was already there. And so it was just about volume of, of delivery people. And one of the really interesting things uh, that Lydia kind of alluded to is that these delivery companies or these supermarkets that do deliver suddenly needed to deliver two, three, four X what they, uh, they you know, usually do in business. Uh, but because the logistics was already there, all they needed to do was hire the people that had been laid off from the restaurants and the cafes who already have you know, service backgrounds. And, uh, and they were immediately able to deploy and delivery again in, in, in most major cities. Uh, did not grind to a halt just because of volume. So th those are four major differences between the China internet marketplace and, and the way that it's deployed in the U.S. And I think uh, that came into play during COVID-19 shutdown. That's really interesting. There's, of course, uh, Gary, another, and Andrew, I'll come to you in a minute, but I have a follow-up for Gary. There's, of course, another big difference. Um, maybe isn't so much about the internet, uh, uh, the, the internet foundations, but we know that China actively blocks uh, uh, many uh, tech platforms that are coming from the West and does impose some censorship on content within the country. How did that come into play during the continuum? The, the, the Great Firewall stops a lot, of, um, a lot of access for websites outside of, out of China, but um, where the censorship has actually become extremely advanced and very, very evolved is within the Chinese internet. And so uh, Lydia also talked about these Tencent apps. WeChat is the most popular messaging app in China. It has incredible penetration in the, in the, uh, in the country. We're talking 80 plus percent 
across the entire country. In major cities, is 93% uh, for WeChat usage. But every message in WeChat can be and often is censored. And so it's not just, um, it, well, it, it's, it's, it's advanced to the point where you don't even know that you're being censored because you send a chat, it looks like it's gone through, but then you don't get a response because it turns out that the person on the other end or the chat group you're in has not received it. And so that gets turned on when there is something happening in the country that the central authorities want to make sure that they can control. They can control the narrative. They can control the information. At times, it is, yes, used to combat misinformation. But then at other times, and COVID-19 is one of these examples, it was used to control the narrative to make sure that stories that the central authorities thought were going to be harmful to social order or social harmony, they would just actually scrape and then you will not be able to see at all. This is text messages. These are articles. So the Chinese internet actually has to be real, uh, netizens have to be really creative in the way that they send messages. And so they use a lot of emojis. They use videos now. They kind of encrypt code, uh, um, text and video. Um, and, and it came, it really, really came into play during these last few months um, because the first that we heard of COVID-19 was from a, a doctor in Wuhan who was a whistleblower. He, was a, he, he sent out a private note on December 30th. Very, very quickly, it got scrubbed from uh, WeChat and the internet. Um, and, but it had already been screenshot. It got shared all over the place, including in international media. He got reprimanded. He ended up eventually dying uh, because of coronavirus in February, in early February. And then the Chinese internet went into uproar. So this is the first time in quite some time that we've seen the volume of Chinese netizens rise up and call for freedom of speech via the Chinese internet. Um, and authorities have actually had to react. They're changing the narrative about Dr. Lee. He is now seen as a national hero. Um, and people are actually, those of us who are professional observers of China, are very interested to see how the authorities are going to address this very, very um, fervent call for uh, freedom of information and freedom of speech because of the censorship during the COVID-19 crisis. Fascinating, thank you. Andrew, I wanna, I wanna turn to you. Um, you, you too are, you, you, you're, you're an expert on China tech, but I really wanna focus on civic technology in the US um, and, and elsewhere outside of China and, and what we're seeing in terms of what kind of civic technology in the face of the crisis we see emerging here um, and whether it is deployable and scalable at any kind of speed um, that we saw in China. This is a really, really important question, actually. Uh, what we mean by civic tech is technology that, that uh, uh, people use in order to interact with their government, to interact with each other around you know, things like public health. And so what we saw in China uh, is a really dramatic and largely very successful effort to use technology uh, to try to stop the spread of the virus. What we see in the United States right now is an explosion of DIY civic tech activities. And the question is, uh, how are we doing compared to China? Uh, is it going to work? Um, and so I just want to uh, call out the, the fundamental difference between what we see in China, what we see in the US, it's very obvious to say this, but I, I'm just gonna say it, is that technology in China, uh, in, in China, consumer technology, media technology is highly controlled by the government. 
so every CEO of a major internet company in China is on a first name basis with the head of the government agency, the relevant party official that regulates them. They are in constant contact with the government and they do things at the request of the government and they check to make sure that it's okay before they do uh, uh, make major moves. And so in uh, China, the, the app that uh, we saw before that produces this QR code and that as Gary described, uh, uses AI, uses machine learning in order to color code every person using the app. And this is in the major cities, Hangzhou, Shanghai, uh, Beijing and so forth. Um, that app is, uh, uh, the content of that app is determined by the government effectively. They decide what is the machine learning algorithm that tells you whether you're green, whether you're yellow, whether you're red. And imagine as an American, imagine what it would be like if to go into any grocery store, any restaurant, any hotel, you had to whip out your phone, uh, the subway, you have to whip out your phone, show your QR code. Now, that would be fantastic because it would uh, allow many people that are currently at home to go places with some degree of confidence that you are not going to be um, exposing other people to the virus. On the other hand, uh, it is a level of coordinated activity uh, and frankly control that is absolutely alien to the American system. So what we see in China is highly consolidated platforms, many apps that are distributed through Alipay, through uh, Tencent over WeChat, that apply a government-determined algorithm and that essentially are made mandatory because the government requires all of the service providers to check and uh, look at the app. And what that app is doing, and this is a really critical thing, is following your location and building a trackable contact database that the government holds and runs. So again, as an American, imagine if your phone was sending to uh, Google and Facebook, which by the way, it is already, um, and then extending beyond that to be sending to the government. In the case of China, we know that the, that the Alipay the app, for example, specifically sends location data to the police. So it's not just the health ministry. They're also sending it to uh, uh, the, 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 the police uh, in China. Um, and so what, what happens is if your uh, app is green, you can go places, you can get in. Uh, if your QR code is yellow or red, you have to go check in with the health authorities and they will decide, do you need to self-quarantine at home? Do you need to check into a hotel uh, or some other form of enforced mandatory isolation? And so these measures collectively have produced a very dramatic slow, uh, uh, slowdown in the spread of the virus in China. Looking at the US, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is the classic US response, which is to say that civic tech in the United States is typically government as client, so in other words, government procuring and purchasing technology from vendors or DIY, bottoms up, citizen driven, nonprofit driven efforts to try to build civic applications and technology that do the job for the government. Um, and so these public functions are, are often taken on. And I've been in the thick of some of this uh, as a participant and as an observer. And what you see are things like hackathons and challenges. OpenIDEO, the Allen Institute for AI, they both put out prizes and said, can people build models, build algorithms, build tools? Um, something called the US Digital Response is a whole bunch of former government technologists, people that served in uh, the government in the US Digital Service in a, a part of the GSA called 18F, which is basically like a McKinsey or an IDEO for, for government. Um, they've now moved on to the private sector, but on, in an emergency like this, they come together and they start to self-organize efforts. One of the major things that they're doing is matching volunteers from Silicon Valley, engineers, data scientists, you know, designers, nerds of some fashion, with 
state and local government agencies that are desperate for help. And we've got a whole model for this that we've worked out over time. We find a project manager, a product manager, we assemble the right team, we define the project, we go and build stuff with government. The big thing here to call out, and this is just a long-term policy thing, Aspen style, is that we have hollowed out government's technological capabilities. Our governments are so starved of internal technical capability that we have to do this kind of volunteer self-organization thing from the outside if we're ever gonna build usable technology. So we've seen things like the National PPE Coalition, which is a bunch of, uh, it's kind of like an aggregation layer on top of a bunch of uh, bottoms up efforts from hospitals and hospital groups and uh, academics in, in public health to try to match personal protective equipment and gear with the hospitals that need it. Uh, they've come up with matching systems and now we're trying to aggregate across regional and system-wide matching services at the national level. There's also something called Project N95, which is trying to match people that have supply with people that have demand and come up with rational ways to basically deal with traditional market uh, participants and supply sources, new market supply sources, people that are building new, uh, taking their old factories and, and jacking them into uh, uh, respirators and ventilators and so forth. Um, and we've also seen some really interesting bottoms up work around model. So probably these days, I think the best model that's out there is one called COVID Act Now. Maybe it's the ones being um, uh, distributed by a, a team out of Johns Hopkins. They're all collaborating. But predictive modeling is something that the governments that we've been dealing with feel like they don't have any capacity to do. And so they're turning to the outside world and saying, help us build a predictive model where we take our inputs of death rates, hospitalizations, and turn it into a trajectory for what we can expect in terms of load. So anyway, the final thing I'll just say is, um, uh, if, if you take this problem of contract tracing, China's solution was uh, zero privacy, a secretive algorithm, mm -hmm. uh, and a mandatory uh, use, both uh, at the day-to-day -day level and then mandatory quarantines for people that um, are exposed. In the US, if we're gonna build something that's gonna be effective, it's gonna have to be privacy protective. It's gonna to have to be open. We're gonna to have to be able to see the code, see the uh, AI, see the ML. Otherwise, uh, nobody will use it. And here's the critical thing that we lack is the ability to get ubiquitous adoption. So all of these bottoms up efforts are unable to achieve the ubiquitous adoption that is absolutely essential if meaningful contract tracing is gonna allow us to isolate the pockets of people that are at high risk, free the people that are at low risk and allow the country to get back up to speed quickly. And the one thing that gives me some hope here is that the very large tech companies, Apple, Facebook, uh, Google, uh, Amazon, uh, and you know a few others that we could name, I guess Zoom maybe is in this category now thanks to uh, uh, coronavirus. Um, these companies, if they could join together to drive adoption of a, let's call it a winning DIY app or winning infrastructure from the outside with validated content from the CDC, with a privacy protective way of using like one-way hashes and local storage of location data so that we can compare and find overlaps without having to expose people's privacy. These are techniques that are available to us, but the only way that we're gonna achieve ubiquitous adoption of anything is if these private sector platforms with massive market share were to join together and push adoption. Well, that is fascinating that, that the sort of the conflict and push and pull between the efficiency of a centralized system and the trade-offs, um, you know, the, the downside to that in terms of, you know, potentially privacy, 
compared with this very sort of can-do American entrepreneurship that is yet, what is nonetheless not joined up and it's not as effective, perhaps, not as deployable, not as scalable. Um, it's fascinating to see this uh, play out. We're gonna go to your questions now. I've got a, a, an interesting question to follow up for you, Gary. You mentioned about how AI had, had been used you know, previously to diagnose cases. How, uh, uh, Pilar mentions that uh, she's in Madrid where the population is being tested with quick tests that are not always accurate. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, there, there are multiple ways that AI is being used for diagnostics. I, I want to be clear, I, I'm in no way an expert on this. Um, this is from our reporting. Uh, there are three primary ways. The first one is contact tracing, and contact tracing is extremely important. Uh, you heard Andrew mention that term multiple times. It has been one of the reasons why China, and not just China, but South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, these regions of Asia that have been very successful at containment, every single one of these places has used contact tracing, which means if somebody is diagnosed, they go back and figure out where this person has been, either by interview or by data, and then anyone they come in close contact with, they bring them in and then they test them. That is a, it's, it's a very important part of the containment strategy. Across China and also here in Hong Kong, uh, there's AI, there's supercomputers that are running um, contact tracing algorithms so that every, anytime somebody gets tested, they immediately, well, they generally, they, they know where this person has gone and they try and figure out who they've come in contact with. Uh, and they figure out how far, how many degrees of separation by this time, based on their symptoms, based on um, how long ago they think they uh, may have you know, contracted COVID-19. Uh, and then they, they, they figure out you know, how wide um, to go when it comes to sort of the dragnet in some, in, in some way. The, the second way that AI is used for diagnosis is um, on chest scans. So uh, when, you, when you have pneumonia, when you, certainly when you have this type of pneumonia, on a chest scan, you'll see shadows, but uh, different, there, there are different types of shadows or different types of viruses. Um, and instead of relying on a radiologist who honestly, because COVID-19 is so new, they don't have the cycles of repetition to be able to say, yep, I recognize this, this looks like COVID-19, they've used machine learning. And so they have submitted all of these CT scans into the machine, these you know, tens of thousands of diagnoses. And now the machine will tell you whether or not this is likely going to be a, a COVID-19 case. And the last thing, this is not so much diagnosis, and this is very, very controversial right now in China, is that there's a new AI that's been developed that can actually, uh, based on, again, symptoms, based on blood work, uh, based on a bunch of uh, psychographics of the individual, determine the likelihood of survival. And again, for triage, this technically matters because triage takes up not only nursing and doctor time, but most importantly is, uh, is ventilators. And this is one of the great bottlenecks of the US healthcare system right now is that there aren't enough ventilators in these major cities like New York and that they're struggling. And you know, with COVID-19, you stop being able to breathe on your own. And so the question now is, and I, and I actually don't know whether or not China has deployed it, but the question among academics in China is, we have this AI, should we deploy it to figure out who should get the ventilators? So th those are three ways that AI is definitely being used in the diagnostic process. Thank you. There's a, a question. I'm, I'm going to give this one to you, uh, Lydia. There's a question uh, from uh, my former colleague uh, at Twitter, Rahil Krishid, who's the co-founder of uh, now of uh, Laminar Global, and he, who's, he's in India. Um, Lydia, what do you, he, his question is, how do you see China countering the reputation risk it faces as the, as the global dust on the pandemic settles? 
I'm not uh, entirely sure what he means here by uh, it, when he's talking about reputation. I can imagine that on the, um, it, it cuts both ways. On the one hand, some are, are wrongly, and I will express my personal opinion here, you know, pointing fingers at, at, at China as somehow being at fault for a, for a, a, a virus that certainly it, it, it couldn't possibly have wanted. Um, you know, on the, on the flip side there, uh, the containment efforts have been cl clearly successful. Maybe some um, disagree with some of the tactics. Uh, do you see, how do you view this reputationally in China for Chinese, uh, for businesses coming out of China or for the country as a whole? Uh, great question. And as a communicator, you know, we really care about reputation. Um, my thinking is that without putting a grade on how China did it, I think there will be a conversation after this that it all goes over about the role of government, uh, the role of effective government. And that is something that I started to see, you know, some articles start talking about it, not just comparing the system, but exactly when situations like that, what is the role of an effective government? And, and I might suspect China will be driving some of the conversation about this, okay? Because in some ways, remember today, United States overpassed the number of patients compared to China, okay? All of a sudden situation has flipped. So people start to wonder, you know, what is the role, uh, you know, when situations like this happen? I don't have an answer, but I think China has still has a long way to go in order to explain herself. You know, they need to tell a better story. But at the same time, through this exercise, what I noticed something, Vivian, is that the younger generation, the Gen Z, started to change. I think they are much more in tune with what's happening around the world. They're much more connected. Most of them have studied abroad. We started seeing during this two months period of time, type of contents and a bit of rebellious content coming out. Yeah. And if they were not censored, some of them were censored very quickly, but like Gary mentioned, and you know, they start using different languages. So it remains to be seen after this COVID-19 happened, what would be the newer generation trying to define themselves in the world? So would that impact China's reputation? It remains to be seen. I wish I had the answer, probably ask me in three years. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating just the way we're seeing norms all over the world you know different mm -hmm. every culture but changing you know potentially in, 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 in we're watching them change in real time uh, possibly forever um andrew i'm going to direct this next one from you it's from an anonymous questioner um in light of china's success in clamping down on coronavirus uh how do you how do you think about the privacy trade-offs in a crisis such as this should we be worrying about privacy less right now or more right now. This ties back to some of your comments earlier, so I'm directing this one to you. Yeah, I mean, my, my own view on that, uh, just to, to, to give you a, an editorial opinion, is that it's a uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a mistake uh, to cut back on expectations for privacy in moments of crisis. It's very tempting to do that, uh, but I believe that it's a mistake because it's very difficult to go uh, backwards once you've crossed certain Rubicons, uh, and so. Uh, the, to me, as a, as, a, as, a, as a technologist, the good news here is that there are ways that we can do uh, contact tracing uh, that are very privacy protective um, and that, uh, uh, that you know, take advantage of properties of encryption to be able to compile your own little personal database of where you've been, uh, compare it with other people's databases, uh, 
uh, using things like one-way hashes. And anyway, we know how to do this. The, the, the cryptography is well-developed, it's well-understood. Uh, and uh, my own view is that um, uh, uh, we ought to be deploying those kinds of solutions. To me, the big question is not so much whether we can do the kind of contract tracing that China has done without violating privacy, uh, but rather, can we get ubiquitous adoption, which is necessary in order to really understand who's been with who and, um, and where the likely um, uh, routes of transmission are taking place? This one uh, is an interesting question, Lydia, you touched in your presentation about schools going remotely. And the question is from Stephen Balkin, Family Online Safety Institute. How do, how do the panelists, and I'll, I'll throw this open for whoever would like to answer it, maybe start with you, Lydia. How do the panelists think that the way we educate our kids will change after recover? recover? I know a lot of, um, in this country, American parents are asking the same question of themselves. Although they're also asking how quickly can I get my children out of my house because they're driving me crazy, but that's another issue. I think definitely there will be a, a change, a major impact. We started already seeing uh, online education products popping out everywhere, not just to entertain kids or get people, ed, uh, student, uh, student educated. I think all of a the sudden they realize, you know, technology is another way to get kids engaged. Uh, there's still a lot of problems because, you know, kids can be running around the house, not really attending, and the teacher cannot check, you know, 20 of them, etc. But nevertheless, I, we start to realize is that we probably need to rethink education, you know, not just the purpose, the delivery, the approach, the courses that, 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 that can achieve the same goals for the student. So in the past, it was just one way. Now it's more engaging, more, more, and using technology. And I think down the road, um, what I think from what I see from my staff who have children, uh, what they realize is that they need to be also technology savvy, you know, catching up with their kids. And, and this will ensure that, um, so what I saw is that actually some of the moments is that they actually have more engagement between parents because father and, and daughter or whatever, they have to work together, sometimes fixing the connection, fixing this, fixing that. Of course, there are arguments all the time, but some of my, my staff told me that, you know what, through this engagement with technology, interaction with technology, you start to realize the kid's potential or the, the kid's um, uh, 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 weakness, etc. So it's very interesting that using technology, maybe there is some kind of more engagement interaction between parents, which, you know, they, there isn't a lot here in China, but everybody's busy. So I think uh, there's going to be a psychological and societal, societal discussion down the road, but nevertheless, technology will probably facilitate more communication than we thought than before. This is going to be fascinating to watch. I think there are going to be two major changes uh, uh, in, in education in China. The first is a massive acceleration of the deployment of digital technology uh, digital ed that had already started. I mean, there had already been about $30 billion of funding that was committed by the state for this. They realized they hadn't rolled it out fast enough. A lot of rural kids were still stuck with no internet at home and no computers. So to, they ended up having to watch um, classes broadcast over television. But the second big difference is this. In China, education is still kind of hierarchical. In fact, in a lot of towns and cities, high schools are still named by number. And the, you know, the number one high school is literally the number one high school. The best students go there. It's heavy testing. A lot of these really well-funded, really, really high caliber schools 
have been recording their, uh, their, their classes. And they're now available as digitized uh, material. And so there's a huge amount of hope that this is going to start a movement to truly democratize information and education across the entire country. We'll see if it happens. Fascinating. Thank you. Wow. This is, we could go on for a long time, but unfortunately we're out of time. So um, I want to thank you, Lydia Lee, Gary Liu, Andrew McLaughlin. Thank you everybody. And we'll uh, see you again soon. Bye-bye. Andrew McLaughlin is president of a venture-backed architecture startup that's working to transform the way high-rise buildings are constructed. Previously, he led global public policy at Google. Gary Liu served as head of labs at Spotify. He has also worked at AOL and Google. Lydia Lee is a marketing communication strategist. She's president of Weber Shandwick China. Vivian Schiller leads a program at the Aspen Institute called Aspen Digital, which focuses on media, technology, and cybersecurity. Previously, she was president of NPR. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Today's conversation was held by the Aspen Digital Program at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.